All right, all right, all right. So I remember early in my, my childhood days trying to read the Bible that we're going to read from here in a few minutes. Romans chapter 15 is where we're going to turn. But I, I struggled to read. I struggled with the content. I struggled with just the, the idea of reading itself and, and engaging what I was reading and then as a, a young Christian, I continued to struggle, but the struggle was different. I was interested in reading. I, I wanted to know more, but I struggled with content sometimes. And I'm sure some of you guys have been there where there, there's a law or there's a rule or there's something in the Bible that you read and you go, I really don't, I really don't know. My personal approach was, I, I said, okay, God, I'm, I'm submitting I believe you, I trust you, I'm submitting, but I don't get it. I don't understand, you know, I'm going to follow you. Um, a cursory reading of the Bible, or even sometimes, you know, a longer reading of the Bible, whatever you're at, you end up at that spot where you read something and you're just struggling, whether it's struggling to believe, struggling to understand, struggling to apply, whatever that struggle is, a, a cursory reading of the Bible, you find that, which leads us to this series. We end up with questions because of those situations. It's not uncommon for ministers and pastors to get those questions. Heck, we have some of those questions ourselves, which leads us to this series. What we want you to know is that you're not alone and that we want to help you by answering some of those questions. If you haven't been here for the whole series, the week one was, is the Bible God's word? And which version of the Bible is best? Week two was, is the creation story literal? Can we take that story and, and believe it for as it's written? And then, can we take Genesis seriously? Last week was, did the Old Testament polit permit polygamy, and did the Old Testament require a woman to marry a rapist? If you haven't caught those, they're on our Facebook page, they're on YouTube, they're on our website. Check them out. I highly recommend that. This week, we're going to do questions seven and eight. Question number seven is, do we still need the Old Testament? I'll do that in here in a few minutes. Pastor Michael, do question number eight, which is, why did God require Israel to annihilate the Canaanites? So, question number seven, did, do we still need the Old Testament? The answer is yes. Of course, the answer is yes. Have you ever read a book, a good book, or watched a, a really good movie, um, and you find a plot twist? For as good as the movie, the book is in and of itself, the plot twist adds something to it where you need the backstory to really understand what's going on. Last week, we used Forrest Gump in between, a, a scene from Forrest Gump in between the messages. Imagine watching Forrest Gump. Imagine picking the movie up where Forrest is running from one ocean to the other, and when he gets there, he turns around and, and runs back again without knowing as a child he had on leg braces. Or as I'm sure at least public school students, many of you have read the book To Build a Fire. There was a man in the, in the book with no name. He was just referred to as the man in, in the book. And there's near the end of the book uh, a chapter where 
he's strangling, attempting to strangle the dog that has traveled with him. What a, a tough place to pick up that, that book and understand what's really been going on. If you hadn't have read the, the first part of the book, you wouldn't understand how being cold and wet and the desperation for fire and failed attempts at fire, how the, the, the extremes that had brought that man to. And then in 2016, if you only watched the last six minutes or so of the Super Bowl, you never would have known that earlier in the game, Atlanta was up 28-3. to You need the whole thing, the whole picture, to really, really understand what's going on. Every one of those stories needs its plot built, needs its storyline for us to have the context and to really understand what's happening. The Bible, it's no different. It's popular in our culture for people to try that, though, to say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, but these laws and rules of the Old Testament, I'm, I'm not going to pay attention to. I'm going to stay away from those. To do so is equivalent of picking up the novel, picking up the movie from the last half on. It's not going to make as much sense. Nonetheless, even knowing that, there are people in our day and age who want to follow Jesus Christ authentically, but they struggle with the Old Testament. Paul, part of what we're looking at in Romans chapter 15 this morning, is Paul was teaching new ideas to a New Testament church using old material. And we're going to see how that played out for them I'm going to start at verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul there, that, that very first word, anytime I see we, I know that's an inclusive word, but what does that mean? Is Paul just referring to himself and another group of people or is he referring to a, a larger mass of people? Um, obviously, we know we, he's writing to the Romans, so we know it's a, the church in Rome, but what was the makeup of the church in Rome? Rome was, was a popular town with a very diverse culture, but there were Jewish and Gentile believers in the church in Rome. It was really close to half and half, but there were just slightly more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. This would have been really important as we go through this passage, we already know we're going to be discussing the Old Testament, but if we were, we were going through this passage and it was all Jewish believers, people who were very familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, this passage would be taken a whole lot differently. But knowing that Paul was, knew he was writing to Gentiles, the impact that the Old Testament had on Paul's writing is important here. So we who are strong ought to bear the important thing I want to point out to you guys about ought to bear, at, at least in this context, is that Paul wrote in present tense. So we, right now, have these things to do. He said, without the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. Again, Paul wrote that, that should please is present tense. Paul's not referencing future things. He's not re referencing past things as he starts to talk about these past documents. He's referencing what they do in our lives right now. 
For even Christ did not please himself as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. This last verse, verse 4, we got to pay close, close attention here. For everything that was written in the past. Now, if we were to split this book between New Testament and Old Testament, the writing of the New Testament was ongoing when Paul wrote Romans. When he wrote this letter, so when Paul talks about written in the past, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the former books. So he says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So to a church, a New Testament church made up of Jewish and Gentile believers, he's telling them that the Old Testament was written to teach them. That means it has some sort of value. So that... that through the endurance taught, endurance is, is, a, is, a, is a positive term. It's something we think of highly if someone has mental and physical stamina. So that the, though, though that through the endurance taught in the scriptures, that's where it came from. That endurance came from the scriptures. Again, this was being written, so he's got to be talking about the Old Testament here. And the encouragement, another, another benefit of the Old Testament to a New Testament church. That through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. Paul just laid it out there for the church for us to simply read as well. Yes is the answer. We do need the Old Testament. It provides benefits for us. I want to give you four quick reasons why we need the Old Testament. The first one is to better understand the New Testament. After all, the New Testament is based on the Old Testament. We see that in Paul's writings, that the principles that, that are, we see in the New Testament are based on what was written in the past. It's the foundation of the New Testament. The New Testament authors used Old Testament quotes 900 times in the writing of the New Testament letters. 900. Without the Old Testament, the New Testament would simply be difficult to grasp. Number two, to fully appreciate the holiness of God. Look, we like to, to, to strike through, to avoid, to, to disregard some of the laws and, and rules and ceremonial things found in books like Leviticus. Those things that are difficult to grasp, those things that are difficult to, you, we really have to chew on them. And God, what did you mean by this? But each one of those things had a principle. One of the principles that we see in the Old Testament is how holy God is. Yes, some of those rules, some of those laws were extreme. That indicates the extremes that human beings in our brokenness had to go to to approach God. It shows how holy He is. And that then shows how extreme He was to send His Son to redeem us. So that's number three, is we need the Old Testament to be able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, to recognize the messianic claims of Jesus. 
The Old Testament was what had a, a sacrificial system. That was the, the way we learn about God's people dealing with him. People would sin. They would have to approach God to ask for forgiveness. In order to approach God, a sacrifice was required. But it never ended. It was a constant loop of sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. A better sacrifice was needed. That better sacrifice was Jesus. He was foretold in the Old Testament. He, it, was, it was predicted, prophesied that he would come. There were things told about him that the people of the, the New Testament era, the people who were, were alive just before that, the people who were Jesus' disciples, they would have recognized him by the Old Testament, by what was told of him. We can recognize him exactly the same and validate what was written in the New Testament based on that. The fourth thing is to live according to God's wisdom. Those commandments and laws that are in the Old Testament, they're more than just rules to live by. They, each one of them revealed God's wisdom, revealed some sort of idea about how God was calling his people to live. For instance, the first commandment, if we were to read in Exodus chapter 20, is have no gods before me or over me, depending on your, your translation. That's more than a rule. It's about priorities. It's about keeping your priorities connected to God appropriately, keeping Him the highest priority in your life. We need the Old Testament to learn those things. So here's a review really quick. Four reasons to better understand the New Testament. To appreciate God's holiness, to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and to be able to apply God's wisdom in our lives. Here's what I got, want you guys to remember. Disconnecting from the Old Testament is like watching the last half of a movie. Without the first half, the last half's not going to make the most sense. This story, why on earth will we not want this story to make the most sense? It's a story of love and romance. It's a story of bravery. It's a story of war. A story of honor and family. A story of work. A story of betrayal. A story of sacrifice. It's a story of ultimately redemption. It's a story about you and your creator. It's the greatest story ever told.
Okay, gang, I want you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, please. Go to Genesis 12. Eventually, we're going to wind up in Deuteronomy chapter 7. My question, the question I hope to answer today, grows out of the mistaken notion that somehow the God of the Old Testament is this old, angry, bitter, mad scientist who's out for vengeance and judgment overall. And the God of the New Testament in the person of Jesus is very soft and he's very conscientious and he's very merciful and he's kind and, and loving. If given the choice, most of us would choose the New Testament portrayal of God through Jesus because none of us are into judgment. Uh, that is, until someone has wronged us, then we're all about it. Uh, Neo-atheist Richard Dawkins, he is one of the leading voices of the neo-atheist movement in America, has written the following. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniacal, malevolent bully. I had a hard time actually typing those words in my office this week. They seemed irreverent to me. It seemed like I was crossing a line, and yet these words echo the concerns of many, many people. I mean, if you never study the Word of God, if you never look intently, more than just a glancing sort of storybook reading then you might come to the same conclusion that, well, the God of the Old Testament is all about judgment. He's all about fierce proclamations of violence. He's all about wiping out entire races of people and judging. And the God of the New Testament is all about grace, kindness, and mercy. However, any student of the Word of God, anyone who looks intently into the Bible, knows that God wasn't simply angry in the Old Testament and loving in the New Testament. That is a false premise from the beginning, and here's how I know that. Because God also demonstrated mercy in the Old Testament. He also demonstrated kindness in the Old Testament. He also demonstrated long-suffering patience in the Old Testament. Conversely, in the New Testament, God exercised swift judgment. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira were judged in the New Testament by the New Testament God in the book of Acts for their lies and their deceit, and it cost them their lives. In the Old Testament, God was merciful with a city like Nineveh. Remember the story of Jonah and Nineveh? God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell them they have to repent, they have to turn around. They're an enemy of Israel. And what did they do? They repented. They turned around. God did not destroy them. He demonstrated mercy. Back to the New Testament. Do you realize that Jesus himself said there's a coming a day in the future, in our future, when Jesus himself is going to unleash cataclysmic judgment on planet earth during the great tribulation? You see, you can't make such a general statement that, well, God in the Old Testament is angry and vengeful, and God in the New Testament is loving, because the facts simply aren't on your side. However, however, this question, question number eight, troubles many, many people. Why does the record show that God required Israel to annihilate the Canaanites? The question arises primarily from the passage in Deuteronomy that we'll examine in a moment, 
And it revolves around the conquest of the land of Canaan or the promised land. You see, God promised land for Abraham's people, the Jews. It's important that you understand that in the ancient world, what the Bible reveals is that God, our creator, was carving out a nation. He was developing a people group through which he would bless all nations and all peoples. In fact, we read about it in Genesis 12. Look at verse 1. Genesis 12 is known as the Abrahamic call and covenant. Verse 1 reads, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Incidentally, that would come to be known as the promised land for Israel. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Abraham would be the father of God's nation, God's chosen people group through which he would reveal himself to all of mankind. Watch verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 is the primary reason the United States of America has always been a staunch ally and supporter of the nation Israel. Back in 1948, when Israel gained nation status among the worldwide community, President Harry Truman was leading the charge because of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless nations who bless your nation, and I'm going to curse nations who curse your nation. Then the end of verse 3, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Follow me. The creator desires to reveal himself to mankind. He decides to do this, he's going to carve out a nation. That nation is going to record their story. Without the recorded record of God's nation, how would we know what God expects? How would we know what God is like? We might learn some things about God simply by going out and examining creation, but we couldn't get specific. We might learn some things about God by examining our own inner conscience, that inner witness that's inside each of us, but we wouldn't know anything specific. It's only through the nation, begun by Abraham, the people group, as recorded in your Bible, that we come to recognize who God is and what he expects. Further, it is through that nation that would come the God-man, the Savior of all men, Jesus Christ. Again, verse 3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's talking about Jesus. Look at verse 6. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. At that time, the Canaanites inhabited the land that God had chosen for Abraham's people that one day would come to be known as the promised land. Now that passage is known as the call of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, but that covenant is repeated and formalized one page later in chapter 15. Read with me in Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Do you know what he's talking about? He's telling Abraham that for 400 years, this nation I'm building, you're the father of the nation, for 400 years, they're going to be enslaved in Egypt, the bondage under Pharaoh. 
Keep reading. Verse 14, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. If you know the story, that's exactly what happened. Following the 10th plague in Egypt, Pharaoh said, get out of here. God's nation left their bondage, and as they traveled, Egyptians gave them their gold and their silver and their precious jewels. They were slaves one day, and they were a wealthy nation the next. Verse 15, you, however, Abraham, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In other words, you're not going to see this land. Verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants, a generation in the Old Testament was 100 years. So again, 400 years, we're talking about the same 400 years of bondage in Egypt. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this land that I'm showing you. Watch, for the sin of the Amorites, part of the Canaan nations, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. All right, follow me here, because this is what I'm going to build on. God takes Abraham, says, here's the land. One day your descendants are going to inhabit this land. I'm going to build a great nation through you, and through that nation, I'm going to bless all people. However, it can't happen now. It can't happen now, primarily, because there aren't enough of you to take the land, to inhabit the land. The nation isn't big enough. But More importantly, God says, I'm going to be patient with the Amorites. I'm going to be patient with the Canaanites and five other people groups we'll read about in a moment and give them time to turn around. In Genesis chapter 15, what God is saying is, we're not doing it now because I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be merciful with these people and give them an opportunity to repent. Guess what? It's 200 years after this conversation that God's nation is enslaved in Egypt. And for 400 years after that, they live in bondage. So for a grand total of 600 years, God gave the Amorites, the Canaanites, an opportunity to repent. Again, the way he puts it, their wickedness, the sin of the Amorites, has not yet reached its full potential. Now I want you to turn ahead in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to read two verses. Here's the problem that people have with the annihilation of the Canaanites and God's command to do so. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, Moses is reporting what God has said to the people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations that are larger and stronger than you, watch verse 2. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. There it is. There it is. Now, as a follower of Jesus, we're all about grace. We're all about mercy. We're all about a second chance. We're all about forgiveness. We celebrate the forgiveness of God as it's revealed in the New Testament. How could he say such a thing? In the short time I have left, let me give you four quick considerations. Here's number one. First of all, it's not a general principle. It's an isolated circumstance. God didn't instruct Moses and Joshua and the people of Israel to slaughter everybody in the promised land, only these seven nations, which, by the way, he had given 600 years to repent to turn around. In fact, if we were to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 10, we would find out that God instructed Joshua to pursue peace with the nations, 
to offer them peace first. If they'll turn, if they'll change, if they'll follow, there could be peace. This command is only regarding those seven nations. It is not a general principle. Here's number two. This is not ethnic genocide. It's divine judgment is what it is. We read about a nation totally obliterating, annihilating, destroying another nation, and we call it genocide. Ethnic genocide had nothing to do with it. You see, ethnic genocide has to do with ethnic hatred between people groups. The Jews didn't hate the Canaanites. They had no history with the Canaanites. If the Jews hated anyone, it would have been Pharaoh and Egypt. What you need to understand is what happened to the Canaanites is the result of God's holiness and his divine judgment. Because the Canaanites, the seven seven nations listed as living in the land of Canaan, were some of the most evil, reprehensible, vile people you could ever possibly imagine. Let me show you a picture. This is a 5,000-year-old clay tablet. It's a sculpture. It's about the size of a lunch tray. This is in a museum in Israel. When describing the land of Canaan, the Canaanites and their worship practices prior to the conquest of Joshua, this is what it looked like. Now, let me explain what you're seeing here. On the far right, you have a man and a woman, a father and a mother. They've handed over their toddler to the high priest. The high priest is about to offer that child a living sacrifice to the ancient god Kali on the far left. Kali has four arms, and in each hand, there is a weapon. Under one foot, she suppresses a head. But now follow me, and this is even difficult to say. The parents willingly hand over a toddler to a high priest who, as an action of, quote, worship, commits violent sex acts on that child and then burns that child alive in a cauldron as an offering to Kali. Kali was a dark goddess. Kali was worshipped by the ancient Canaanites and the Phoenicians. Let me show you one other tablet. This tablet is only about the size of my hand, and I struggled to find anything that I could show you relating to ancient Canaanite worship. This is actually an ancient form of pornography. This is a clay tablet the size of my hand, and it's got a man and a woman engaged in a sex act carved on that tablet. So as I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe we could get by with showing this in church. We talked about it as a staff. We decided, no, you got to blur that part right there. You at least got to blur that. So we blurred it. And then we stood back and we said, well, good grief, if you're going to blur that, you've got to blur that over there. Finally, as you can see, I blurred the whole thing. I struggled to find anything as part of their religious worship culture that I could show in a worship service on Sunday morning. These were vile, vile people. I can't even describe some of the things that I saw in my research. You see, the worship of Kali and Baal, they involved idols of men and women with grossly enlarged genitalia, and that was part of their worship. Their worship, if you can imagine, of Kali involved bestiality, all kinds of sexual perversion, temple prostitution, sex acts with children, incest even. And that's before you get to the child sacrifice, the witchcraft, the divination, and the torture. It was an abhorrent, evil culture. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 5, God told the Israelites, it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. The context of chapter 9 is God saying, I'm not giving you this land because you're so righteous, because you're such great people. I'm giving you this land because those are the most evil people imaginable. You see, this was not ethnic cleansing. This was divine judgment. 
the time, the fullness of their sin, remember Genesis 15, had finally come to pass. Here's number three. It's not impatience or ill-temperance on the part of God. It's long-suffering patience, actually. You see, God didn't just explode one day. He blew his top and he said, wipe out the Canaanites. He gave them 600 years to turn around. That means that your righteous, holy, heavenly Father waited patiently for not six weeks, not six months or six years, 600 years. And his love, his forgiveness, his mercy was at the ready if only they would have turned. And then finally, number four, this is not divine vindictiveness. This is divine protection. When we read the record and we see that God instructed Joshua and the people of Israel to totally wipe out the Canaanites, it wasn't to destroy the Canaanites, it was to protect God's nation. Let me ask you parents a question. How far would you go to protect your child? What might you do that you wouldn't otherwise do if your child's health were at stake? You see, we read the record and we say, oh, God's just being vindictive. God God just sounds angry. God's judgmental. He's wiping out an entire people group. Why can't they just live together? Why can't they share the land? Let me ask you a question. Why can't you share your child's time with someone who wishes to do them harm? You would never do that. Neither would God. This is not divine vindictiveness. This is divine protection. Remember, if you know the story, God told them over and over again, don't intermarry with the Canaanites. Don't do it. Wipe them out. Totally destroy them. Don't intermarry. Well, Israel disobeyed, and they did intermarry. And it cost them dearly. It almost cost them their identity as a nation. Because following the grand conquest of Joshua comes the dark days of the judges where they had lost their king. No one followed God. Everyone did, quote, what was right in their own eyes. You see, Israel suffered because they didn't listen. The command to wipe out the Canaanites is not about the Canaanites. It's about protecting Israel. Again, let me quit with this. When you read the Old Testament, you need to understand something. God the Creator decided to reveal Himself to humankind. To do this, He said, I'm going to start with one man and I'm going to build a nation. I'm going to find the most righteous, faithful individual I can find, the most reverent man I can find. And from that line and lineage, I'm going to grow a nation. And from that nation, I'm going to record their story. And when I record their story, maybe then they'll put two and two together and realize Jesus Christ indeed is their Savior. And through him, I will bless all mankind. As Tyler alluded to, why wouldn't you want to read that story? But if you're going to read it, you need to understand it. God is patient. He's long-suffering. He gave them 600 years to turn around. And if they turned around just like Nineveh, just like Rahab in Jericho, he would have stayed his judgment, but they didn't. Look, you don't hear me talk about it very often, but there is coming a day of judgment unlike anything the world has ever seen before. The Bible teaches that God's patience is only balanced by his holiness and his righteousness. God cannot allow evil to continue. One day, during the great tribulation, God is going to pour out his judgment upon the sin of mankind. Thankfully, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I won't be here on that day. And if you have any question whatsoever as to whether or not you will be, 
Oh, we need to have that conversation. We need to have that conversation. And the way out of that judgment is exactly the same way out of the Canaanite judgment. God has not changed. Repent. Turn. Deny your own self-sovereignty and embrace authentic faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to have that conversation, use the communication card in the program. Write, call me on there. Make sure it winds up in the offering container and we'll do just that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. God, give us the discipline to get into it. Give us the patience to work our way through it. God, thank you for your justice. Thank you for your holiness, your righteousness. But oh, Father, thank you so much for your mercy, your grace, and your love. Dismiss us now with your blessing, our God. Watch over and keep us, I pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Thanks for the extra time today. I will see you next time.